Thank you. Thank you, Shlomit. I'm going to stand up because I'm so short that nobody can see me unless I stand up. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak here. It's a pleasure, of course, to, to be here. This paper is really born out of dissatisfaction and puzzlement at the current state of theorising an evil. Uh, and what I'm, what I'm hoping to do in it is to have a look at two fairly loosely connected questions about the concept of evil, about which I am so dissatisfied. But before I even start on that, let me um, do some clearing of the ground so that we're all talking about the same thing. I'm going to be talking primarily about evil acts and our theories about them. This isn't because the idea of evil persons isn't interesting or important, of course, but like many other people, I take the idea of evil actions to be primary. And in any case, primary or not, I think it's simpler to deal with. Naturally, evil acts and evil persons are connected in a variety of ways, but in this paper, I'm just going to focus on evil actions, so I'll very occasionally mention evil personhood. And I'll be assuming, rather than arguing, that the idea of evil finds its place as part of our wider network of moral ideas, and that we don't have to construe these ideas in a purely subjective or relativistic way. Okay, so it's widely agreed that the idea of evil, we use the term evil, in at least three different ways. Firstly, to refer to everything that's bad, and that includes natural bads like earthquakes and volcanoes and droughts and famines, either natural or man-made. And indeed, we have a phrase for this. We talk quite unselfconsciously about natural evils. So that's the first use of the term. The second use of the term is pretty well limited to actions. And here we deploy it to refer to all wrongdoing, as when we say the evil that men do lives after them. And here we're just talking about all wrongful acts. However, there's also a third distinctive use of the term, and this is to delimit a class of wrongful actions which we regard as especially terrible in some way that needs further explication. And I think we're using evil in this third way when we say something like, what he did wasn't just wrong, it was evil. And in this paper, I'm just going to be focusing on this third use of the term evil. All I'm interested in is a subset of the class of wrongful actions which seems in some way to be especially objectionable. And this third construal of evil is the one whose legitimacy is sometimes put in question for a variety of reasons. I have heard it put in question for the putative reason that it's too judgmental. But I cannot honestly take this very seriously. So other than pointing out that the whole of morality is a bit on the judgmental side, I'm just going to leave that one. A second, perhaps more serious objection is that the idea of evil in this third constrained sense incorrectly and immorally implies that evildoers are monsters, unlike the rest of us. Or there's a further objection that um, the idea of evil presupposes the existence of satanic forces, which are metaphysically suspect or even outrageous. Or a further objection is that appeal to the idea of evil in this narrow sense is redundant because it doesn't do any independent explanatory work. While many theorists of evil, myself included, think that these objections can all be met one way or another. And there's now a wide range of theories of evil available in the intellectual marketplace, each purporting to give an account of what it is that evil is. 
and perhaps more importantly, non-philosophers who aren't in the business of theorising about evil at all also continue to use the language of evil in a fairly unselfconscious way and they do seem to understand each other pretty well when they do so. Here's an example of this non-philosophical use of the idea of evil. This is from the author and polemical journalist Christopher Hitchens shortly before his death in December. He wrote an article commemorating the events of 9-11 and he called the article simply evil. And in it he said, among a wide variety of other things, that the regimes of Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-il and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad fully deserve to be called evil. And what's particularly striking about this use of the term is that Hitchens was a really ferocious opponent of religion. He wrote a best-selling book attacking it called God is Not Great. And he certainly wouldn't have used the term evil if he'd felt that it carried any supernatural baggage at all. He was really hostile to supernatural baggage. Another example of this non-philosophical use of evil, I draw from a recent exchange online between two bloggers of different political persuasions. Blogger A is writing from a far-left perspective and blogger B from a centre-left position. And so being from different parts of the left, they naturally hate and loathe each other. The occasion of blogger A's post was the recording by a group of army wives of a song about and for their husbands fighting in Afghanistan. And at the time the blogger posted the recording looked likely to be the best-selling single of Christmas 2011, and indeed it did turn out to be so. So here's what blogger A said about this recording. The military wives' choir is concentrated evil. It is vicious, stupid and banal. It is the worst form of sentimentality. Their husbands murder Afghans for queen and country, and they murder music for the same righteous cause. We cannot afford to be complacent about such ordure. We have to destroy it instantly, utterly. Now, the way I'm reading that, I can't help but parody it a little, but I have to say that the rest of the post really does reveal that this was not a case of exaggeration for supposedly humorous purposes, in what we might call the Jeremy Clarkson mode. The blogger really did appear to mean what he said, and he intended his use of the term evil to be a literal one. Now here's what blogger B tersely said about it. What kind of a person does it take to call something like this evil? And what's really notable, I think, about this little interchange is that neither of the two parties thought to raise any doubts at all about the appeal to evil itself. Blogger A didn't give any apologetic explanation for his use of a term which might be thought to illegitimately imply that others are monsters. Blogger B didn't harangue him for using an outmoded concept whose supernatural implications should be anathema to any self-respecting Marxist. They understood each other perfectly well. They didn't seem to think that the concept that they were deploying so unselfconsciously had these unwelcome implications. Their disagreement was purely about which acts should, in fact, correctly be called evil. Nothing about the bloggers' discourse suggested that they were troubled about the use of the term evil. Although it is possible, that is, it's not incompatible with what they actually say, that they did have such worries. But there isn't any evidence of them having such worries. And there are many similar examples to be found of people unselfconsciously deploying and understanding attributions of evil. So I think we can be reasonably sure 
that a robustly secular use of the idea of evil is a flourishing part of our current moral discourse. And what I'm concerned to do in this paper is not to defend the secular appeal to the concept of evil, since I and many others have attempted to do this elsewhere, but rather to raise some questions about how we theorise about it. And the first question that I want to raise is one which may seem startlingly banal, since it appears to have a remarkably obvious and hence uninteresting answer. And the question is, what is it that a theory of evil is about? And the obvious answer, of course, is that it's about evil. And if we want to know what that is, well, the theory will set out to tell us. That's what theories of evil are for, to tell us what evil is. However, I'm going to try and persuade you that there's a, a less tautological construal of this question and hence a more illuminating answer available. Why is it worth raising this question? Well, one reason is that the variety of theories of evil is now very great indeed. And they range from Russell's focus on culpable wrongs, which are connected in some appropriate way to the production of extreme harms, to Steve Deves's account, to his destructive account, which involves appeal to obliteration of the moral landscape and to various other features. It ranges from Claudia Card's identification of evil as foreseeable and tolerable harms produced by culpable wrongdoing, to Adam Morton's account in terms of the strategic breach of moral barriers which should have been in place. It ranges from Colin McGinn's account in terms of wrongful actions which are pleasurable to the agent, to my own, in my view, very unsatisfactory hybrid theory in terms of both of psychological features of the evildoer and also the kinds of reasons um, of, for the action in play in this specific case and how these re reasons interact with other reasons. And this range of very different accounts of evil raises the question of what is it that constrains them? What is it that theories of evil have to answer to? Because the field is very, very open, and discussion very often proceeds just by trading off the implications of the different theories against a variety of intuitions about specific acts thought to be or, or not to be evil. Now, there's nothing objectionable about this process of reflective equilibrium between theory and particular cases. But it's liable still to leave us with too few constraints on theorising, since many individual <laughs> attributions of evil are hotly disputed. And the appeal only to a series of cases, to a series of, of specific intuitions, is uncomfortably lacking in structure. And my hope is that if we investigate what it is we're trying to capture in a theory of evil, that is, if we investigate what our pre-theoretical grasp of the idea of evil is like, that is, what we think a theory of evil is about, then we may find the resources to provide somewhat more structured constraints on our speculations about the nature of evil. A considerable part of our pre-theoretical grip on evil can be expressed in a series of platitudes, that is, widely accepted general claims about the nature of evil. And this is all pre-theoretical stuff. Here's a non-exhaustive list of candidates for the role of platitudes about evil. And I've culled these from my own intuitions, from the way other people talk, and from the way theorists write about evil. So here's a, a possible list. All evil actions are wrongful ones. Evil actions are the worst actions which can be committed. 
Evil actions are the ones which are most blameworthy. There are no trivial evil actions. Evil actions are rare or unusual or exceptional. Evil actions horrify and sicken us. And there's something incomprehensible about evil actions, though it's hard even to say what that incomprehensibility is. And there's some element of excess, something gratuitous about evil actions. There are clear paradigm cases of evil, most notably, I think, genocide and torture. People who think there's such a thing as evil tend to believe that genocide and torture are paradigmatically evil. And evil actions involve some kind of assault on or denial of humanity, though even that takes a huge amount of unpacking. Well, no doubt there are more possible platitudes, but one notable feature of these platitudes is no doubt already evident to everybody. Many of them, perhaps all of them, have exceptions. For example, anyone who thinks that psychopaths sometimes commit evil acts can't believe that evil acts are always the most blameworthy ones, as claimed above in point C, in platitude C, since on standard accounts, psychopaths aren't fully responsible for what they do, and hence can't be fully blamed for it. Similarly, the most passing acquaintance with the history of the blood-soaked 20th century will show that there have been times and places where evildoing is everywhere, in apparent contradiction to platitude E. And one possible response to this concern about platitude E is to consider just what the exceptional constraint might amount to. Can it perhaps be construed not as statistically rare, but rather as abnormal? with all the normativity packed into that. The idea of evil as involving a non-statistical kind of abnormality would, I think, repay further investigation, but that's way beyond what I'm going to try and do in this paper. Similar observations about exceptions could be made about other of the platitudes, and the ingenuity of philosophers probably ensures that exceptions can be found to most, if not all, of them. But this doesn't necessarily mean that they can't act as constraints in theorising, where there are exceptions, we can always look for some reason for this. And in any case, we needn't suppose that the platitudes must constitute individually necessary and jointly sufficient conditions for evil. We may be looking at something more like a family resemblance concept, or one with central paradigm cases and other increasingly peripheral ones, where in effect we'd be settling for sufficient conditions. Quite independently of the issue of individual exceptions to the platitudes, there's also further consideration. A given theory of evil might turn out to be inconsistent with the truth of one or more of the platitudes. Here is elsewhere, reflective equilibrium will get to work on such incompatibilities, but I think we can reasonably expect a satisfactory theory of evil to be consistent with most, if not all, of the platitudes. And where it isn't, it should be able to explain why the rejected claim does seem platitudinous to so many people. In order to see how the platitudes might act as constraints on theorising, consider again platitude E, the claim that evil is relatively unusual or rare or abnormal or exceptional. Leave aside the issue of exceptions and consider what might follow from the general truth of that claim. It does look as if ordinary criminal murder won't count as evil since, unfortunately, murder is just too common in most societies to, to meet the requirements of platitude E. This is not to say that no murder will be evil, since any individual murder 
might possess further features which qualify it to be an evil act. But murder in general, just qua murder, won't count as evil if we're committed to platitude E. However, there are theories of evil which characterise evil actions, broadly speaking, as those wrongful actions which prevent the victim from living a worthwhile life. Paul Formoso, for example, thinks that evil actions are ones which wrongly inflict extreme life-wrecking harms. But all murders meet this requirement, and hence in such theories would have to count as evil. I think it would count as a strike against that theory that it was inconsistent with platitude E. It wouldn't be necessarily a conclusive strike against it, but it would count against the theory that it so uh, flouts what seems to be a platitude, that there's something rare and exceptional about evil. And if, you're, if you were happy with that, then that's a way in which the platitudes could act as constraints on our theorising about evil. I'm going to skip certain parts here. As some of these claims suggest, our sense of what counts as platitudes about evil, and hence our pre-theoretical grasp of what evil is, has to some extent changed over time. Among other reasons, there's pressure on our pre-theoretical grasp from the demands of coherence with other of our moral and metaphysical views. If, for example, we no longer believe in demons, then any connection between evil and demonic possession will have to be abandoned. But as is shown by the examples mentioned earlier of Hitchens and the two bloggers, this connection can be abandoned without eviscerating our idea of evil. And this kind of change across time isn't at all unique to our ideas about evil. Similar changes can be found with respect to our pre-theoretical grasp of other moral concepts. Consider, for example, the concept of self-respect. There was a time, not so very long ago, when it was platitudinous that self-respect for women, though not for men, involved the refusal of any premarital sexual encounters. Girls were told, have self-respect, respect yourself, say no. I think it's fair to say that this is no longer a central idea, a central part of the idea of women's self-respect, at least not in the West. And there are similar changes to be seen in our concepts of fairness and forgiveness and honour. I'm going to leave the platitudes at this stage and move to another question which may help to constrain our theorising. And this is, this is the question of what we use the concept of evil for. What work does it do for us that isn't already done by other concepts such as the idea of being very seriously wrong or perhaps of being absolutely wrong? Absolute either in the sense of there being nothing to be said in favour of the action or in the rather different sense of there being no exceptions to the claim that actions of that type are wrong. What distinctive role <coughs> does the concept of evil play in our moral thought in contrast to ideas about serious wrong. Well, it isn't immediately obvious how we're to find the answer to that question. What method do we use to move the methodology on a bit here? Other than by looking at the context in which we do use the term evil and by trying to make a plausible hypothesis about what role it occupies there. So I'd like to give some examples, two examples, of contexts in which we are inclined to use the term evil. The first one is drawn from a recent issue of a national broadsheet newspaper talking about events in Syria. And what the, what the reporter 
said, reporting the words of someone he was interviewing, who was a, claimed to be a dissident, the repression is so bad that they've invented a new way of torture, where they heat a metal plate and force a detainee to stand on it until he confesses. Imagine all the melting flesh reaching the bone before the detainee falls on the plate. And here's another example drawn from a report a couple of years ago on the war in Congo and the atrocities associated with it. One such horror was described as being carried out by a combatant who disemboweled and dismembered his adversary and forced the dead man's wife to gather up the dismembered body parts into a heap, on top of which he then raped her. Many people, let's hope most people, would respond to these two cases with appalled horror, though even the phrase appalled horror doesn't really adequately describe the way we feel when we are faced with these cases. And many people would regard these as cases of evil. So here's a hypothesis about the work that the concept of evil does for us. And the hypothesis is this. The idea of evil collects together those wrongful actions to which we have a very distinctive response the response of moral horror. And this response differs from our standard reactions to ordinary wrongdoing, where we may find ourselves responding with differing de degrees of dislike or disapproval or dismissiveness, sometimes even with disgust and contempt. But in contrast, there are some cases, such as the two I've just mentioned, in which we have a phenomenologically distinct response, moral horror, revulsion, sometimes a kind of incomprehension, often a sense of moral diminution, defilement, and even despair. Here's an example of such a response from Primo Levi, talking about the experience of being an observer of horrors, as well as a victim of them, in Auschwitz. And what he said is this, the just among us, neither more nor less numerous than in any other human group, felt remorse, shame and pain for the misdeeds that others, and not they, had committed, and in which they felt involved, because they sensed that what had happened around them, in their presence and in them, was irrevocable. It would never again be able to be cleansed. It would prove that man, the human species, we, in short, were potentially able to construct an infinite enormity of pain. And what I'm proposing is that the way that we use the term evil, the, the, role it play, the role it plays in our moral discourse, is to mark out those actions which we regard as abhorrent in this way. Actions, that is, to which we respond with moral horror. Now this proposal is not an analysis of evil. It's not an account of what makes actions evil. I'm not proposing it as such. Because that's the job of a theory of evil. That's what theories of evil set out to do to provide an account of what makes actions evil. The suggestion, my hypothesis here, is a more preliminary one. It's about the work which the concept does for us, the role it plays in our moral discourse. And what I'm proposing is that its role is to capture a distinct part of our moral phenomenology, the response of moral horror. I'm not going to try and argue for this hypothesis, and that's only partly because I don't really know how to argue for it. 
rather than by asking you just to consider what cases you regard as evil and how you respond to them. But I can try and defend the hypothesis against certain objections, certain possible objections. And in the course of doing so, I'll try and refine it a little. Firstly, it might be pointed out that we respond with horror to various phenomena to which we certainly wouldn't attribute evil. Indeed, it would be quite wrong to, to advert to the idea of evil. Now, this objection is undoubtedly true. We do respond with horror to certain phenomena that we don't regard as evil. The response which even a mild arachnophobe has towards a spider scuttling in her direction is certainly one of horror. I speak from the heart here. But she'd be most unlikely to say that the spider is evil, except when speaking metaphorically. And she knows that she's talking metaphorically. And this is because... At even quite an early age, we know that spiders aren't moral agents. But what they do isn't a candidate for moral judgment at all. Spiders may be abhorrent, but the response isn't a moral one. So much for that objection. A second objection might draw your attention to the fact that people have, in different times and places, found various actions and practices to be abhorrent that we, here and now, find quite innocuous, not even wrongful, let alone evil. Some examples might include what was once called miscegenation, marriage and procreation across the races, or homosexual activity, or the exposure of female bodies. So it might be argued, our feelings of horror are not a surefire guide to the presence of evil. Well, again, I think this conclusion is correct, but I don't think it tells against the hypothesis in question, any more than the fact that people have morally recommended some fairly dreadful actions tells against the hypothesis that morally positive terms such as good and right pick out those acts and states of affairs which we want to commend, which we think are commendable. People can make mistakes about evil, as they can with any other moral term. This is compatible with the role of the concept of evil being to characterise those actions which are in fact abhorrent. However, what both of these objections show is that we need to disambiguate the term abhorrent. On one construal, it means simply productive of horror, as when we say that spiders and snakes are abhorrent to many people. On another construal of the term, it means warranting or meriting horror, as when we say that the cruelty and suffering involved in the medieval punishment of drawing and quartering, was and is abhorrent, whether or not people regard it as such. And the hypothesis which I'm proposing is that evil actions are ones which are abhorrent in the second sense. These are actions to which moral horror is the appropriate response. So we've got normativity in right there from the beginning. And with this disambiguation in hand, we can consider a third objection to the proposal. It might be thought that this view of the work which the concept of evil does for us introduces an unwanted subjectivity into attributions of evil. It might appear that we have here a response-dependent concept, such that acts are evil only if they produce this kind of response in a majority of us, or in all of us, or perhaps in a morally ideal observer, or some respondent. But this, this suggestion that we've got a response-dependent concept here wouldn't in fact, or so I think, conform to the phenomenology, which is that these actions are such as to warrant or merit 
our horrified response. A major aspect of the way we respond to evil actions is that we take them to have a significance which, in one important sense at least, isn't dependent on our interest in it. There is indeed a way in which the significance of an evil act may depend on human interests. It may be a function of the interests of the victims whose lives have been so hideously violated by the evil that has been done to them. But in the sense relevant to this objection, the worry about response dependence, the evil of an action is not dependent on our being interested in it or caring about that sort of thing when it happens to others. What the phenomenology delivers is not that acts are evil because we find them horrifying. Rather, it's that we find them horrifying because they are evil. That's the the direction of the arrow of dependence. The evil is in the action, and it's that that produces the response of horror. That's the phenomenology, which doesn't, of course, guarantee the truth of the claim. So even if we do accept the hypothesis that the role of the concept of evil in our moral discourse is to track a phenomenological distinction, this doesn't commit us to the view that evil is a response-dependent property. No doubt acts which have the property of being evil will have the disposition to produce that distinctive response in us, but that's not what it is for them to be evil. Indeed, it's possible that the phenomenology won't appear centrally in the final successful theory of evil at all. Compare the contrast between the role of the concept of heat in our pre-theoretical discourse, where we'd expect how things feel, the sensation of warmth, to be of central importance, and the scientific account of what heat is, or one of the scientific accounts of what heat is, what heat is, that is, mean molecular kinetic energy, and in this account, the phenomenology doesn't even get a mention. So it could be like that with the phenomenology of evil. In the final successful theory of evil, it might be that the phenomenology doesn't play a central role. But that's compatible with the work that the concept is doing for us being to track this phenomenological response. What kind of constraint, then, can this hypothesis about the work which the concept of evil does for us place on our theorising about evil? (coughs) Although, as we've seen, the phenomenology needn't play a central role in the final theory of evil, the theory should nonetheless illuminate it in some way. We might reasonably expect an adequate theory of evil to reveal something about why the response of moral horror is one which is appropriate to evil actions or at the very least to show why we're likely to have that response. If it is the case that we deploy the concept of evil to track a distinct phenomenological response, then a theory of evil which was silent about that would be markedly less satisfactory than one which had something illuminating to tell us on this matter. Of course, nothing that I've said so far guarantees that there's anything in the world that does indeed merit or warrant the response of moral horror. If there isn't, then our best theory of evil will have to be an error theory with respect to that response. But a satisfactory error theory will show why the error is committed. That is, why we're likely to respond in this way to certain kinds of action, even if the response isn't actually warranted. So even if there are no actions that merit this response of horror. It can still act as a constraint on our theorising about evil. We'd expect a decent theory of evil to explain why we have the response, even if it isn't 
merited or warranted. And of course, I do believe it's merited and warranted. In view of the kind of case which I mentioned earlier, in view of the ghastly history of the last century, which is so implacably continuing in this century also, I myself find it profoundly implausible to claim that none of these events, none of these actions, warrant the horror that they produce in so many people, including, I hear, the people in this room, because I could hear from the silence as I described these hideous actions, something of what people's response to, to them was. So I find it profoundly implausible to claim that none of these actions warrant the horror that they produce. And when we do call such actions evil, in virtue of whatever it is about them, that seems to make this horror an appropriate response, I find it equally implausible to think that we're making any error at all. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I should thank Eve for that very interesting and uh, suggestive paper. Um, and of course it addresses two questions. What's the theory of evil about? And what do we use the concept of evil for? But before she got on to those, answering those questions, she made some preliminary points. So let me begin with one of those. Her focus, uh, she told us, would be on evil acts rather than evil persons. Though, as she says, those two notions are closely connected in various ways. One possible connection here might help us with a question she raises later in the paper, whether what's evil is in fact equivalent to what is very wrong. So imagine that I'm taken in by some trickster who tells me that if I put this vial of liquid that he's offering me into far more reservoir, then I'll greatly improve the health of the Oxford residents who drink it. Now in fact it contains a poison which leads many of those residents to die after a period of agony. I and others would almost certainly think that what I did was very wrong in some sense. But unlike the trick itself, it wasn't clearly evil. And that suggests that if evil is a form of wrongness, it's not objective but subjective wrongness. That is, whether an action is evil or not depends on the agent's beliefs, intentions, motivations, and so on. Okay, so that may be one example of one way in which the notions of um, an evil act and an evil person are connected. So an, e an evil act needn't be done by someone evil, but it must be done by someone acting in an evil way. Okay, let me move to Eve's first question, which is the, the subject of a theory of evil. What, what, is, what are these theories about? Now, the approach she suggests to answer that question is to set out a list of platitudes and then allow those to constrain any proposed theory, if only in the weak sense that any such theory will have to explain why it's inconsistent with any of those platitudes and why the platitude which is being alleged to be mistaken has been taken to be a platitude. Now, at first sight, when you hear the word platitude, you might think that she's calling on the spirit of Carnap and applying within the theory of evil the so-called Canberra plan, according to which a priori conceptual analysis can give us substantive answers to philosophical questions. But on closer inspection, her programme turns out, I was glad to find, uh, to be more modest. 
So really her approach reminds me of the approach that Socrates adopts in uh, the earlier dialogues of Plato, what people call the earlier dialogues of Plato, where he he says, if you're asking the question, what is it about something, you shouldn't um, take any step in your argument where the premises uh, haven't been agreed by all the interlocutors. So I think what she's saying is let's agree on certain fundamental aspects of evil before we go on to the next stage. So unlike people in the Canberra plan, she's not saying that we should seek some kind of role filler which satisfies all these platitudes because some of them, she says, uh, may have exceptions. What they, what they do, these platitudes, is give us a broadly acceptable rough set of boundaries for the concept in play. So evil is not an animal or vegetable or mineral. Evil actions are wrong and so on. Now those platitudes are introduced as a substitute by Eve for appeal to particular cases within reflective equilibrium. So she's objecting there to the paradigmatic um, methodology of modern ethics, um, which has its roots in rules. Since, as she says, uh, many individual attributions of evil are disputed and the appeal only to a series of cases is uncomfortably lacking in structure. Okay, so that's the strategy, the the platitude strategy. Some questions about it. First, the platitudes, which are up there, vary in how platitudinous they are. My guess is that hardly anyone, anyone would deny that evil actions are wrong. And I can't imagine somebody coherently denying that, actually, but I think most people wouldn't. But there might be a lot of dispute about whether evil actions are rare or consist in a denial of humanity. So consider, for example, actions that we might think are evil which are directed at non-humans. It may be that we have to strip the list down to a set of somewhat banal and abstract claims which actually won't help us all that much in developing our substantive theory of evil. So it may turn out to be like that. But let's say that uh, it doesn't turn out that way and we can come up with agreement on a pretty concrete list. That raises a second, more general worry about the appeal to platitudes, which of course applies also to the Canberra plan. Just as one might think that the truth about psychology and in mind may be far from what the folk think, the same may be true of morality. I say it may be true, It may not, of course, but perhaps we should avoid a methodology which resolves that question in advance. And finally, I wonder whether the list of platitudes is any way going to keep particular cases at bay. I suspect almost as soon as any one of them is disputed, cases will be in the offing. So consider what Eve herself says about them. The platitude that evil actions are the worst runs into the case of a psychopath who's not responsible for what she does. Real-life cases from the 20th century throw doubt on the platitude about rarity uh, and so on. Because that's something on her first uh, question. Now, the second question is, what do we use the concept of evil for? Evil is an old word. 
And one interesting aspect of it, which as far as I know uh, is still the case, is that there hasn't been in contemporary uses an, an inversion, a value inversion of the sense of uh, evil in the way that there has been with bad and wicked. So my daughters will call things wicked and they mean that they're very good. But I haven't myself come across any case in which anybody uh, calls something evil, meaning that it's very good, which I think is interesting and probably supports uh, Eve's uh, main claim. Anyway, it's an old word, and the Oxford English Dictionary begins its entry as follows. So this is to quote the dictionary. It says, In Old English, as in all the other early Germanic languages except for Scandinavian, this word is the most comprehensive adjectival expression of disapproval, dislike, or disparagement. In modern colloquial English, it's little used, such currency as it has being due to literary influence. Uh, the dictionary tells us that evil is the antithesis of good. Now, that in itself is interesting, since philosophers have been keen for at least a hundred years to distinguish goodness from rightness, the evaluative on the one hand from the deontic or the normative on the other. What the OED seems to be suggesting is that wrongness and moral evil just are a kind of badness. An evil action or a wrongful action is a bad action. But the general definition does raise the question whether at least sometimes people use evil to mean very, very morally bad or very, very wrong. Eve does admit that possibility and as far as I can see one might understand her examples of Christopher Hitchens uh, and the bloggers in that way. But I think she's almost certainly right to imply that sometimes people use evil to refer to a particular class of very, very morally bad or wrong actions and contemporary theory of evil is, I take it, aiming to delineate that class. But since the term seems pretty flexible, it seems to me unlikely that any such theory is going to capture the majority of such uses in ordinary language. And it's not obvious why it, why it should. Eve's own suggestion is that we use the concept of evil to refer to actions to which a response of moral horror is uh, appropriate. Now, there I'm reading her as in fact answering the question or providing an answer to the question um, what is evil so I think one way of hearing what she said about the uh, psychology of attributions of evil is as um, an analysis of evil in other words what I'm saying is that I want to put pressure on that distinction she was drawing between um, an analysis of evil on the one hand an account, and an account of its role on the other. It seems to me that she could have retained that distinction if what she'd gone on to make was a purely psychological claim. Right? So you know, we, we, have, we have this um, uh, psychological response to certain actions, as uh, she described, um, and that's how we use the concepts of evil. Right. That, that seems to me not an analysis of what evil is in the moral theoretical sense. But she didn't say that. 
what she said was that that response in those cases that she mentioned was appropriate. So I think she is offering a moral account of, of what evil is. Evil is that property in actions which makes it appropriate, appropriate for us to have the response she described. Now, we might call those actions horrible. Others, as Eve noted, have made other suggestions. So, for example, Claudia Card has said that evil actions are foreseeable, intolerable harms produced by helpful wrongdoing. So we might call those injurious actions. And now two questions arise. One is whether two such accounts of evil, Eve's and Claudia's, aren't in fact consistent with one another. So the horrible actions just turn out to be the injurious ones. Okay. Now you might say, well, now what you're doing is, is treating these accounts as offering um, a story about the accidental or contingent properties of, of evil. Whereas actually the theories are supposed to be telling us what makes an action evil. You're just saying um, evil actions have this contingent pair of properties of being horrible and injurious. But I don't think that's right. I think there would be nothing to stop one putting those two accounts together and saying, I'm, I'm offering an, an account of the essence of evil. What makes an action evil is that it's injurious and harmful. Okay, so these accounts needn't be seen as conflicting. So in other words, it, I think it matters. It may not matter... Um, we may not have to choose between these um, different conceptions of evil because we've got the linguistic resources either to combine them or to continue with both conceptions okay, so you could say actually I want to keep apart uh, horrible actions from injurious actions that's fine, just create a new concept I mean, philosophers are always doing that you know, we'd probably call it evil one and evil two or something like that. A lot of philosophy is taken up with sharpening conceptual boundaries. If in doing that we end up with two concepts rather than one, that may be an advance rather than a failure. Thanks. Thank Great, so um, do you want to... Do I get to? Yes, I think it'll be interesting, and then we can take some uh, questions. We've got till 11, so... Very briefly, very briefly. Thank you very much, Roger, for these uh, extremely helpful comments. Firstly, what Roger says about the relationship between um, evil acts and evil persons, I just entirely agree with that. Uh, I think it's manifestly the case that evil acts needn't be done by people who are evil agents. They may be evil doers, but they needn't necessarily be full-blown evil agents. Um, but nonetheless, if the act is to be evil, it must be done by somebody acting in an evil way. So I'm just happy to accept all of that. Secondly, the Canberra plan. I didn't have anything as ambitious as the Canberra plan in mind when I set this up. Um, if what I'm doing is uh, elaborating some Socratic procedure, fine by me. That's, that's just okay. I wasn't, incidentally, intending to dump... Uh, appeal to intuitions. My hope is to try and find more considerations to constrain our, our theorising, not to substitute for ones that we already have. So if we still need an appeal to intuitions, again, that's fine by me. Um, whether my
my proposal about the role or the work that the concept of evil does for us actually amounts to an account of what evil is. I did wonder about that myself. My intention is not to offer... Sorry, I can see that people at the back can't see. My intention is not to offer uh, an account of what evil is. And if I were offering that, I think the proposed account, the evil actions are those which merit a response of horror, of moral horror. I think it would be a very bad account because it would be so thin. It would immediately invite the question, well, what is it about evil acts that makes it the case that they merit the response of moral horror? And the answer to that question might well be a more satisfactory account of evil. So it may be that there's a spectrum, that there isn't a, a very sharp distinction between the pre-theoretical grasp and the theoretical grasp. That, so thank you for pointing that out to me. But I wasn't intending to give an account of evil. This is supposed to be preliminary stuff. Um, if what I say about the work that the concept of evil does for us is compatible with the correct theory of evil being one about injurious actions, that's fine by me. I didn't want to beg the question against theories of evil that focus on the, the effects or the relation to harm or injury that the evil action has. I don't myself endorse such a view, but I was hoping not to, to rule it out. I don't want to beg the question against such theories. So if it does turn out to be compatible with Professor Card's view or Luke Russell's view, fine by me. I'm hoping that this pre-theoretical account is compatible with as many possible accounts of evil as are currently available. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Gerard. I enjoyed that uh, presentation. And the uh, part of your presentation that interests me most is this idea that the work that a theory of evil does is to um, collect acts that inspire horror or that produce, and, and then this normative <coughs> idea and so on. I wonder if you might put that on your list of platitudes, because I think that's one of the things that was guiding me in formulating. It seems something very right about that. Now, recently I've agreed to chair a session at an APA meeting for which uh, a student, graduate student, has written a paper challenging the idea that evil acts somehow are worse than others from a Nietzschean point of view in a way that's very interesting. They're obviously they're morally worse, but um, the idea is that um, evil inspires a kind of respect that contemptible actions don't. And which is worse, you know? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. uh -huh. um, so I mean, these platitudes uh, do a certain amount of work in helping you to construct a theory, but each of them can be questioned yes. in some very, um, very interesting ways. So I just thought I'd throw that out to see. Um, you know, contempt yes. is a very different kind of response. It's another response besides the horror response. And it's not tied with evil until you read Hannah Arendt on Eichmann yes. in Jerusalem. And there you have these two responses fighting with each other. Horror at what he did, contempt for the man. That's a very interesting way of putting it. Um, I'm inclined to feel that there are some evil actions which inspire contempt as well as horror. If I'm right about our pre-theoretical grasp, then by and large will inspire horror. That's what, what I'm focusing on. But I'm not sure that's entirely compatible. 
uh, sorry, entirely incompatible with inspiring contempt as well. Let me give an example which seems to me to be an illuminating example also for about the platitude that evil acts are always the, the most wrongful, the most harmful ones, which myself I have doubts about. And this, this particular case seems to me to, to cast some of these doubts. And this is the case. Um, I first heard of it in the concerning the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, but I have a feeling I've also heard of it in connection with the Chinese invasion of Tibet. So it may be either that this is a ghastly act that was performed in more than one place, or it may be apocryphal. But it doesn't really matter. It's the act itself that we're focusing on. And this is the case where the army captures a dissident, somebody who's protesting against what the government does, and kills him, just kills him out of hand. And then charges his grieving parents for the cost of the bullet. Now, many people feel that charging the grieving parents for the cost of the bullet is, the, is, is an evil thing to do. I find this an illuminating case because it's not clear to me that killing the dissident is evil. It's clearly wrong. It's, as, 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 it's very, very seriously wrong. It's not clear to me that it's evil. And the bit of this pair of actions that tends to, to provoke the judgment of evil is the one about charging the parents for the cost of the bullet. Now, that seems to me uh, an evil thing to do, but it also seems to me a contemptible thing to do. To twist the knife in the wound like that, contemptible. So that's why I think that perhaps these two, these two responses aren't incompatible. Um, though I find your description of your student's paper very interesting indeed. <laughs> This might be slightly tangential to the main focus of this paper, but I was interested in how what you said in today's paper, particularly at the end, relates to your previous work. So you talked about the fact that, if I get this right, your, your account is basically psychological plus that yeah. type of reason. Yeah. Um, and in the paper I saw, I think a year or two ago, where you talked about, um, similar to what you were just saying, that in the case of evil, what we consider to even might not actually be the worst yeah. part of the act. Kind of thing. So, relating to that, to the idea of evil being apparent, I was wondering if you might want to make that more specific and say that evil acts are those where the appropriate abhorrence is out of proportion with the wrongness of the act, where wrongness might be characterised in terms of the harm done. <coughs> so, you know, the killing the dissident is... Um, in terms of the actual harm done, no worse than sort of killing anyone else, but the abhorrence mm -hmm. is because of the charging of bullet. Yeah. That's out of proportion of the actual sort of consequences or, or something like that. That's interesting. Um, right, let me, let me think about that. Um, I'm a bit reluctant to accept the idea that the response is disproportionate because unless you think the evil is entirely located in the... Uh, consequences in terms of harmfulness, then you're not going to think that the abhorrence of response is disproportionate. You're going to think, yeah, that's the right response to this. So, yeah, so yeah, that's probably the wrong word because I meant okay, it's yeah. the appropriate response, but it's kind of. Oh, right. So, or the appropriate response is greater than the harm alone, yes. something like that. I would be happy to accept that for the kind of cases that we've just been discussing. But then there are some cases which certainly I would never want to deny where the evil act is indeed 
hideously harmful, the great genocide or, or torture cases. And there we don't want to say that there's a mismatch between the abhorrence response and the amount of harm done. Um, though I'm not a, um, a harm theorist of evil, I think it would be crazy to deny that there are some cases of evil that are just hideously harmful. And I want to be able to capture those as well. But you're right to think about the cases where we're more reluctant to say, oh, well, this is evil because it's so very harmful. Looks as if something else is doing the work. In those cases, yes, there does look as if the abhorrence sure isn't focusing on the harm. It's something else is doing it. Okay. Uh, Steve. Yeah, um, so I wanted to ask you about the uh, metaphysics of baggage. Yeah. So I thought you were pretty quick with this. So from, from what I understood, the problem was Christopher Hitchens is an atheist and he talks about evil and some bloggers do. Yeah. Therefore we can uh, forget about uh, metaphysical baggage. But um, look, there's plenty of people out there who um, believe in demons and devils. 70% of Americans apparently believe in Satan. Okay. Yeah. Now, when these people talk about evil, I imagine that many of them um, actually have in mind that uh, Satan is causing them to do this, that, and the other. So they would be using that term with the, the full set of metaphysical yeah. baggage. And the other thing you said is, you don't believe in demons, so we can move on. But later you talked about you contemplated an error theory about evil. Yeah. Well, couldn't the error just be um, believing Satan? Yeah, yeah. Um... Thank you. That's, very, that's a very illuminating question. Right, firstly, uh, I did, of course, deal with the metaphysical baggage much too fast. That's because that's not really the focus of this paper. Uh, a serious treatment of the metaphysical baggage would indeed have to take into account what you said. I use the example of Hitchens and the bloggers uh, just to show that it's possible that we, that we have a perfectly secularised uh, but working concept of evil here that people who have no metaphysical commitments at all to the demonic can nonetheless use the idea of evil, understand each other, criticise each other, do whatever it is we normally do with concepts. I didn't want to in any way cast doubt on the possibility of there being a concept of evil which does have very heavy metaphysical baggage. I'm sure that's the natural origin of the concept. Uh, Evil, like many of our other moral concepts, might well have its natural home in a religious picture of the universe. So I suppose it didn't occur to me that anybody would deny that people with metaphysical baggage could deploy the concept of evil perfectly satisfactorily. I'm sure they can. There's now a good question as to whether it's the same concept. Uh, I take that to be part of the task of a theory of evil. That's one of the things that theorizers of evil might well get to work on. When people who are committed to the idea of Satan deploy the concept of evil, do they mean the same thing as as more secular thinkers? I don't have an immediate answer to that question. You'll be surprised, not be surprised to hear. But yeah, I think that's a good question, and this is something that theory of evil should be working on. So thank you. Another question? I, I want to press you on having the starting point be actions rather yeah. than persons, as yeah. did Roger. And it isn't, it seems to be satisfactory to say that there could be evil actions that were not done by yeah. evil persons because we could figure out, we could say that if we had a full account of an evil person that an evil action that could be an account that wasn't done by an evil person could be an account that had some of the features uh, but not all of them and as I've been listening to you it seemed to me that many of the dividing points uh, between whether something, many of the counterexamples and dividing points um, between whether something is evil um, 
as an action or not, really have to do with um, thinking of them in terms of a certain kind of perversion of human agency. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to, to use Roger's um, environmental example, um, an evil action that doesn't um, harm a, a human being could be something that is done with a, a kind of complete disregard for what the other is. Mm. So a, a whole bunch of dividing lines like that seem to me to have to be with evil person rather than evil action as being the starting point for theorizing. Mm. I think I'd like to ask you a question about that. Um, I'm very happy to accept that there's a psychological element in our attributions of evil to actions. I take it that's not enough for you to think that we're talking about evil persons. It certainly wouldn't be enough for me to think that we're talking about yeah, evil no, persons. Yeah. Right. Okay, so we can allow that there can be a, a, an account of evil that's act-focused, but that it's still a psychological account, or partly psychological, that adverts in some way to intentions or graspings of reasons or something like that. The reason that I would still prefer to focus on acts rather than persons, even though they are, of course, closely connected, well, it's really twofold. Firstly, I think if we're focusing on evil persons rather than evil acts, that is, if we take that as our starting point, it would quite possibly be because we were committed to a background moral theory, namely virtue ethics. Right. I'm not a virtue ethicist, and that's, why, that's one reason why I'm not starting with, with evil persons. But the other more substantive and hopefully more interesting reason that I, don't, I, that I do want to distinguish between the evildoer and the evil agent, the evildoer, the person who just does an evil act, and the person who is an evil person, I suppose the reason is that if we allow that anyone who does an evil act is thereby an evil person, we just have to be so pessimistic about the state of the human species because you only have to look at what went on in the Nazi Holocaust, in the Rwandan genocide, in the Cambodian killing fields, to find that the most ordinary of people were very ready to be swept up into doing the most terrible of actions. I mean, really very large numbers of people indeed. And I suppose I am reluctant to judge all of these people to be evil persons, if I can avoid it, because the picture of the the human race we get is just so dreadful. Maybe that dreadful picture is justified. But if I can resist it, I will. And one way of resisting it is to say, look, they did do evil, but that's not enough for us to judge them as evil persons. There are evil persons, but it doesn't. It takes more than just the commission of an evil act to make an evil person. That's my best shot at that one. Um, let's take two questions. And Vesson, sorry, on Yes. Yes, I think that Roger Crisp summed up the central notion here, um, saying that evil is that property in action which makes it appropriate to have the response we have, i.e. horror. Um, my question is, um, what if such a response fails to be forthcoming? Yeah. I have just two very comments. Now, uh, even in the examples given by Eve Gard, such as Congo, at least one of the parties there involved certainly failed to feel horror, mm -hmm. namely the perpetrators. Now, we can put that aside as, as in some sense obvious that they didn't feel horror. Uh, but you seem to appeal more generally to 
outsiders that people are, I mean, without an interest in what goes on, will react with horror. So uh, the question is whether such a position is, is too risky in ways. It's vulnerable because perhaps this response is not forthcoming. It's, it's sort of it seems to rely on some empirical circumstance that, that can help before. <coughs> That's the question. Right. Um, can we take one more question and then you can answer them? Both, yes. Five questions quickly, sure. please. Yeah, I, I just have two questions. One, just a clarification. One is, uh, could you just clarify what you mean in the platitudes by incomprehensible in some way? <laughs> because actually, although neither you nor Roger mentioned that as a dangerous one, that was the one that struck me as being most odd. Yeah. Um, I assume clearly if you mean incomprehensible in some way, you also may well mean comprehensible in some way. But I'm wondering exactly what that platitude is meant to be. Um, my second question just fits in very well with, with, with what just been said, which is that um, I understand um, you, you clarified that your sort of account of horror is not meant to be an account of evil. Yeah. But I do still wonder that there's just something problematically subjective about horror, nevertheless. That in, if, we, if we contrast it with, for example, moral disapproval, moral disapproval for me has a content, right? It's not just a reaction. It also has a, a, a prescriptive content. And I'm not sure what the content of horror is, or even moral horror, which might be a distinct... Uh, category for you. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there is some subjectivity problem here or whether you see horror as having some other content beyond just being a visceral reaction. And if, and if it's not just more than a visceral reaction, then I wonder in what sense we can talk about appropriateness. Isn't it just something that people feel? Right, thank you. Um, I'm so sorry. Could you just remind me what your, que your question was? Ah, uh, from the outside, yes, of course. Right. Um, yes, you're perfectly correct, of course. Not everybody does have the response of moral horror to evil actions. But I think that would only be a problem for my proposed account of the work that this concept is doing for us if we have people who both judge an act to be evil and aren't horrified by it. Now, the example you give of the perpetrator, you're, of course, perfectly correct. He doesn't, he's not horrified by what he's doing, on the contrary. But then he doesn't judge his action to be evil either. So I think there's only, uh, this is only going to act as a counterexample for my proposal if we have that pairing, the judgment of evil and the lack of horror. Now, firstly, with evil as with any other concept, we have to allow that many people are going to make the wrong judgment, make the wrong call. So the fact that there are many people who look at horrifying actions, actions that I regard as meriting horror, and say, well, so what, next please, that's neither here nor there. People sometimes get it wrong. The problem is finding the pairing of saying, yes, this action is evil, but no big deal. Not, not horrifying. I think such things could happen. I could imagine this happening in somebody who has to deal with the consequences of evil a great deal of the time, who has to patch up the victims, let's say. I can imagine them, them becoming numbed to the, the presence of evil. But I think I would regard that as something bad that had happened to them, morally speaking, that they'd made a sacrifice in the cause of trying to cope with the consequences of evil, and the sacrifice was in their own moral sensitivity. And I think in general, if we found somebody that looked at evil acts and said, yeah, they're evil, and shrugged their shoulders, we'd feel that there was something morally lacking in such a person. And that, again, I think bolsters the thought that our idea of evil is bound up with the, the response of moral horror. But it is, you're quite right to focus on the fact that this is an observer 
treatment of evil. What matters is us looking at it. Um, I need to think further about that, so thank you very much. Right, um, can you remind me again? Just... That's what you're comprehensible. Oh, yes. Oh, I wish I could say more about incomprehensibility. <laughs> <laughs> but I have some logical problems in saying a lot about that. I put that up simply because so many people, myself included, look at evil acts and think, oh, how did he get there? Why would anybody want to do that? In fact, in one of the examples I gave, the, the example from the Congo, Somebody has offered an explanation, which I found a very illuminating one, but it didn't remove the incomprehensibility, or didn't remove it entirely. So I offer it to you as a kind of ostensive fleshing out of the incomprehensibility claim. Apparently, the beliefs of some of the people involved in some of the hideous atrocities in the Congo are that if you do disembowel and dismember your adversary, collect his body parts into a heap, and rape his wife on top of them, then the power of your enemy will flow into you and you will acquire all his power. I think it's true that that belief, where present, makes the action more comprehensible. I don't think it entirely removes the incomprehensibility because we want to say things like, how did people come to have that belief? We can hardly explain its presence in terms of its truth. Or even if they do come to have that belief, why would they think that acquiring that extra power justifies doing such horrific things? So there's still a feeling of mismatch between the, the, um, the overt aims of the action and what is actually done. So I think that's part of the incomprehensibility. And that maybe leads me to an attempt at some kind of sketching out of what it might consist in. We perhaps feel that in evil acts there's a distortion of practical reason and ideas I think about distortedness deformation and defilement may be pl playing some central role here and to some extent I'm making this up as I go along, I haven't thought this through but I do feel that the Primo Levi quotation suggests that ideas of defilement play some role in our response to, to evil and I think the idea of defilement would repay further investigation. Some of this has been given in, in a recent book by Matt Kramer on capital punishment, in which he does discuss the idea of defilement in connection with evil. So I think this is worth greater investigation. Another paper that seems to me to, again, focus on something to do with staining and defilement is by Eleanor Stump. I can't unfortunately remember the title of the paper, but it's something to do with moral residues, where she points out that even where the consequences of evil have been as removed as they can be, which isn't very far, that is, even where the evildoer has repented, fully repented, aligned himself with the good and not with evil, where he's been forgiven, nonetheless something remains. And her example is that of Goebbels, senior Nazi. Suppose, she says counterfactually, Goebbels had repented. Suppose he'd survived the war and fully repented of his actions, made such restitution as he could, uh, accepted full punishment, and had been forgiven by everybody who was in a position to forgive him, which might be quite a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Suppose all that had happened. Then she asks, would we feel it was perfectly okay to ask Goebbels round to dinner? And many of us feel, oh, no, it wouldn't be okay. Even if you'd forgiven him, you wouldn't want to ask him around for dinner, not somebody who's 
arms were steeped in blood like that. And she canvasses the idea of certain actions leaving a stain on the soul. Now this sounds like the idea of defilement, and it suggests to me that in further investigation of defilement might help us handle the incomprehensibility uh, platitude if we accept that as a platitude. That's my best current shot at that as well. There's room for a great deal more theorising, clearly. Thank you.